You're listening to the GameStreet.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by... Brandon Sinclair. And it's just the two of us this week, because the rest of the team are, you know, busy working. How dare they? Um, we're going to focus on just the one story this week. Uh, it's a story that kind of dropped earlier this week, like annoyingly on a bank holiday Monday, when half the UK was off and therefore unaware of what was going on. But it's, uh, it was big news dropping first thing on a Monday. Uh, Embracer Group has acquired Crystal Dynamics... Idos Montreal and Square Enix Montreal for $300 million. Uh, included in the deal is the Tomb Raider IP, Thief, Deus Ex, Legacy of Kane, and more than 50 back catalogue titles. Now, initially I read that when, uh, when I was covering the story, I read that as 50 back catalogue IP, and I think it's back catalogue titles, so it's like basically all the previous Tomb Raiders and Thieves and Deus Exes and, and games like that. Um, it's not the biggest deal monetarily. It's, in fact, it's it's perhaps the lowest or one of the lowest acquisitions we've seen this year. And that's something we're going to be talking about today at, at some point. I mean, compare it to the, the tens of billions of dollars spent in the Take-Two Zynga and Microsoft Activision Blizzard deals. Um, it's very low, but it's an interesting deal in that, you know, like it, it, it doesn't disrupt the industry quite as much as, say, you know, either of those two, Microsoft Activision or Take-Two Zynga. But there's so many interesting aspects to this, I've found. Like, I've seen so many different kind of takes. We do love our takes in the games media. Um, so many different takes and kind of opinions and stuff over the last week. And Brendan, what was your initial reaction? My my initial reaction um, was, one, that the price is uh, really low. And two, that that it kind of uh, signaled an end to uh, a trend in, in Japanese uh, game publishers for the last 10, 15 years about their their strategies for appealing to the West. And uh, I, I think I think probably we might want to start with the value um, just because I, I think for for most people um, looking at this, that was the the eye-catching bit because 300 million is it's a lot of money. Um, but given the valuations that we've seen of of so many uh companies in the last well since the pandemic started and people were like hey games are good again and then everything kind of exploded um it's it's a lot lower than you would have expected like the the ratio of uh recognition and relevance to dollars is pretty high uh, compared to some of these others, and and there are a few reasons for that. Um, one one of them, I think, is is the this deal is um, cash and free of debt. So, whatever whatever these studios uh, might have might have owed, that that debt stays with Square Enix, um, and the deal is also all cash. So you look at something like the uh, the acquisition of Gearbox, which is another big relevant studio with a big relevant franchise in Borderlands, um, even if the publishing rights to that are pretty solidly locked up by Take-Two at the moment. Um, <clears throat> that got $1.3, $1.4 in, in in that deal. But that was heavily loaded up with um, Embracer stock and performance considerations. 
So on the day the deal closed, Gearbox was getting like $360 million. So still more than all of you know Square Enix is getting for this. Um, but a, a chunk of that, uh, a little less than half, I believe, was made up of Embracer stock. So, and they didn't they didn't just like sell that day one and, and tank the price of the stock. Um, so they're they're kind of betting that this massive conglomeration of Embracer companies, which are you know dozens and dozens and dozens of independently operating uh, developers and publishers, they're they're betting that nothing bad happens to them. Because if something bad happens to them, the stock's not worth as much, and all of a sudden, this one point four billion dollar deal that they had is is worth a lot less. Um, and 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 like more than a billion dollars of that deal was was tied to performance. And if Gearbox Entertainment doesn't bring in, you know, doesn't hit these revenue targets over the next however long, and and I'm, I, I suspect it's not going to hit all of them. I mean, like, I, I think there is some element of these deals where being able to put a really giant price tag on them actually has a, a tangible value for the people that are that are selling the companies, even if they never actually hit every last dollar of that. They would prefer it to, to go out there as like, oh, it's a one point four billion dollar deal instead of, you know, oh, it's, it's more like nine hundred million or whatever it is that they're more likely to pull out of this. Um, yeah, so the Square Enix deal is, is just, it's, it's cash and it's straight up day one. There's no contingent consideration for it. So I I think that's part of why it looks, uh, so much worse than so many of these other deals that we see flying around the industry. Um, because a lot of those deals are similarly, they, that they're structured in a way that they, they have kind of, uh, money added into them that might never actually get paid out or recognized by the, the people that are selling on the other hand it's still really low right <laughs> like it's still really low like I'm, I'm just looking through embraces previous like most recent acquisitions so um it acquired perfect world entertainment which is a, a fraction of the perfect world um company and digic that those two combined were 339 million it purchased um, board game publisher Asmodee for 2.75 billion euros. It acquired eight studios. So the, the, one of those ones were announced like a like eight studio, you know, eight acquisitions in one hit. But among them were things like Crazy Labs, Ghost Ship Games, DigiArt. So Ghost Ship Games, obviously the Deep Rock Galactic people. Like these are smaller studios, but that deal still came to 300. Sorry, 313 million. Aspire Media, which is the studio that does all the Star Wars ports, that was 100 million. Easy Brain, which is a mobile publisher I genuinely don't don't think I'd heard of before Embracer bought it, 640 million dollars. So like it it does feel low. I was reading a, a piece on this and you know, I was talking about like the many takes on this deal. Uh, there was an article on VG by some bloke called Christopher Dring. Not heard of him. Um, sure he's nobody. Rando. <laughs> um, rando. Some complete rando called Chris Dring. Um, pointed out, though, that the part of the reason the price is low is, you know, like you say, I think you've got a good point in that you know, it doesn't come with kind of performance expectations, which surprises me given the value of the, um, or the, the, the potential of the IP that they've bought. But also, obviously, like these studios, particularly Crystal Dynamics and IDOS Montreal, have had a string of 
titles that have not quite met expectations that they've invested heavily into and they haven't quite returned their investment and you know one or two wouldn't be an issue but when you look at it, it's Marvel's Avengers the you know the, the entire Tomb Raider reboot trilogy didn't quite hit what Square expected Thief the 2014 reboot which is awful um, Deus Ex Mankind Divided uh, you know Human Revolution did really well Mankind Divided did not and um, there's enough I mean that's what that's five games alone there Marvel's Guardians the, of the Galaxy is the latest Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy also Leo that undershot initial expectations as, a, as Square has been quoted as saying like that's I mean three Tomb Raiders Thief Deus Ex Marvel Guardians that's what six or seven triple A products or at least very very high double A but certainly I, I would argue triple A products that haven't met expectations like that's not a great track record it's a shame because a lot of those games are really good but commercially that's not a great track record, which has probably helped drive that price down. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the critical reception, it's uh, Marvel's Avengers seems like it was uh, a disappointment critically, and maybe mm. Deus Ex or Thief, but like I'd say, Thief, Mankind Divided, if I remember rightly, like reviewed well, yeah. and like, and and it's one of those games where since actually people have a lot of praise praise for it, and like there's a lot of, a lot of goodwill towards Mankind Divided now, um, but Thief definitely. And uh, Marvel's Avengers, yeah, those have been. That's a pretty good those track have been record. The big disappointing. I mean, if you're talking about a triple A operation, like that's that's hitting it uh, more mm. more often than you're missing it, and that's that's. I, I think that's one of the the big things that's that's surprising about the the deal and the value of it is because a lot of these games were really good, mm. and you can't escape the fact that, like it's not just the you know these were good entries in long running series. I mean, they were, but. The Tomb Raider trilogy really kind of revitalized the Tomb Raider brand. Tomb Raider had been struggling for years, perhaps more than a decade, because you obviously have the classic PlayStation era. It then all goes to part around the PlayStation 2 era. They sort of brought it back a bit with Tomb Raider Legend and Anniversary, but it wasn't until the 2013 reboot that Tomb Raider really kind of elevated and kind of just reached a new level, reached a new audience. Um, Deus Ex. Deus Ex was you know, this, you know, this incredible seminal title from... I think it was 2000, 2001. But the sequel was very badly received and there hadn't been a Deus Ex game for years. For, so for them to bring out Human Revolution and it be really well received and warrant a you know a, a sequel in Mankind Divided, like that, they've, they've revitalized a brand here. They've revitalized two brands, struggled with Thief, but they've revitalized two brands that have a lot of kind of heritage in this industry. That's good. That's not, that's not just producing good games. That is, you know, essentially like advancing historical parts of, of games IP and games industry, you know, games history. Well, it's kind of the same thing with IO Interactive, right? They rebooted mm. Hitman and it was yeah. critically uh, loved, but uh, it was it was financially, it was a bit of a disappointment for Square Enix. And so they, they let the uh, IO Interactive management uh, buy itself out from, from Square Enix and go independent. Uh, and that was 2017, I think. So this has been kind of a, um, and th this is what I was talking about earlier, where it's it's part of a, a larger trend. Square Enix uh, in in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, they they started telling people like, hey, we need to to westernize. We were looking at the market and games like Grand Theft Auto and Assassin's Creed and first person shooters like Halo and Call of Duty are the you know the marquee names in gaming now and they're they're all developed by western studios and 
there was sort of this uh, this existential crisis going around <laughs> Japanese developers in general, uh, where you had like Keiji Inafune of Capcom and Hideo Kojima, Shinji Mikami, Tango Ghostworks, all, all of them pretty much... Everyone was on the same page and saying, you know, the conventional wisdom is that Japanese developers are falling behind. They're losing relevance and they need to to make games not like Japanese developers, but like Western developers, um, because the there are all of a sudden all these Western titles just dominating the sales charts. And those are what the mega blockbusters are in the industry, um, except for Nintendo. But Nintendo has always been an outlier and will always be an outlier. So they don't count for discussions like this. And I, I think what was happening was just that Western developers were finding, you know, what they did well in the console space. And prior to that, uh, prior to that moment in the early 2000s, um, the industry had just been dominated by Japanese devel- developers to such a bizarre extent since the, the launch of the NES that this this isn't about Japanese developers losing their touch or whatever. It's just about, well, gaming is a global business and there are developers in other markets now that are putting stuff together and figuring out how to make things with their own, putting their own mark on it instead of just copying Mario. And and so they were having competition for the first time uh, from from other other markets in a, in a big way. And the reaction for a lot of them at the time was like, okay, well, we are... We're going to do two things. Uh, we are going to partner with Western studios to make games for us. And we are going to increasingly take the games that we are making and try and make them explicitly for Western tastes. And that, I think, is that's that's a tricky path to walk Um because I think every every developer really tries to make things with their audience in mind. But if you're trying to make it for culture A and you're part of culture B and you you only understand culture A from the outside, I think that becomes uh, a much a much trickier task. Um, it's not impossible because Capcom, I use it as an example, they were they were one of the first to to do this. Um, in 2006, they had Dead Rising and Lost Planet. On the Xbox 360, new IP, both of them kind of developed with with Western tastes in mind uh, by Japanese teams, and both did pretty well. But Capcom's strategy then uh, it, it started to to lean into the the Western tastes uh, a little hard and and to to less success. They had uh, they partnered with Airtight Games for Dark Void. Um, they lined up a. A movie deal with Brad Pitt's production company for that one. That, that didn't really come together in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the Bionic Commando reboot from Grin, they did like a, a kind of a, a 2D spiritual successor, which worked, and then they did like a, a full-on 3D action game, which did not. They, they churned out a Lost Planet sequel in Japan real quick, um, which was not well-received, but then found uh, external studio, external Western studio to make Lost Planet 3. It was not well received. Devil May Cry, they gave to Ninja Theory for for DMC. And that actually reviewed well, but like a lot of the fans of the series just hated it because it was 
it was different from what they actually liked. Sega as a company, they they were they were ahead of the curve on this, and they didn't really they didn't really shout about their strategy to the press as much. But uh, Sports Interactive and Creative Assembly were were two of their Western Studio pickups around 2005, and the Football Manager series and the Total War series have done excellently for them. They're still doing well, and Capcom is is still uh, a significant presence in Europe. But at the same time, they were also like they pushed for the Marvel Cinematic Universe games and they they partnered with a bunch of studios on Aliens games most of which were either cancelled or terrible. They acquired a San Francisco studio, Secret Level, in 2006 and then they had them make a Golden Axe reboot which uh, was not well received and then they quietly kind of closed the studio in 2010 and that was that was sort of an end to their western push uh for for a while they 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 still have the uh creative assembly and sports interactive they've they've added two point to their their roster but you, you look around at other publishers and it's it's sort of similar deals uh namco bandai they they went to ninja theory for enslaved odyssey to the west they they made a big deal about their western push with like a clash of the titans movie tie-in which did not go well. They they found a Western studio to, to reboot Splatterhouse for them. And then that studio folded and they took the project away from them. Uh, maybe not in that order. Uh, they had Ridge Racer Unbounded. Um, and and that, that was actually not terribly uh, reviewed, but, you know, they, they didn't support it at all. And it just kind of came out uh, with, with no, no hype, no awareness, and, and sort of uh, died on the shelves there. And and Square Enix was was the big one acquiring IDOS. Um, they they picked up Sleeping Dogs when Activision dumped it. They they partnered with Avalanche on Just Cause, um, which IDOS published the first one, so it was sort of a continuation of that. Life is Strange. Square Enix Montreal developed a bunch of the the mobile games using the Hitman and Lara Croft. Uh, reboot ip and and for the longest time square enix was kind of like i thought of them as the ones that had done the best with the western push because we we just talked about you know that that long line of titles which were critically well received and they may have fallen short of the the financial expectations for them but it it happened so consistently and if you're making great games but you can't you can't turn a profit on them uh, or, you, or you can't hit your targets with them, then there's either a problem with your targets or a problem with your marketing, I think, your, your support for the title. Because the developers were doing what they were supposed to do for the most part. They were delivering titles that were worthy of being successful. And, and so that's, I think that's part of why it surprised me that they finally uh, seemed to give up on it. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, you know, like the last few years, that, that existential crisis of Japanese publishers being worried that they, they had to change everything to appeal to the West, I think has really kind of um, fallen to the wayside here. You look at Square Enix and, and the success they've had with Nier Automata and a bunch of Final Fantasies, Final Fantasy fourteen, Final Fantasy Seven Remake, half of their catalog now, of of Japanese titles anyways is just, you know, remakes of, of Final Fantasy or or really narrowly tailored efforts like Triangle Strategy, which is like, hey, we we know that there's an audience that wants something kinda of like Final Fantasy Tactics out there, so we'll just we'll cater directly to what they want and hey, it'll do well enough for us. Um, Namco Bandai, they've had the From Software Souls series and, and now Elden Ring, which is pretty clear evidence that you know things that are still distinctly japanese have 
the Japanese developers' creative sensibilities are a-okay with the rest of the world. They can be, you know, that that upper tier, you know, selling more than 10 million right off the bat blockbuster. You've got Capcom's Monster World. You know, they 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 had kind of also given up on the the, the Western push. They they shuttered Blue Castle Games. Uh, which was, sorry, Capcom Vancouver, the, the developer that they had make Dead Rising 2 through 4. Um, and each each Dead Rising that came out seemed to be diminishing returns in, in, in terms of quality, uh, at the very least. And, and things like Dead Rising 3, with its like more grimdark, trying to be like Call of Duty push, uh, were, were not well received. So... They finally like shut down Capcom Vancouver, and then that same year they've got Monster Hunter World, which turns into the the single best selling game in company history. Like it's not even close. It's like seventeen million to ten million is the next best one, and that ten million one is Resident Evil Seven, which was also a pivot point for the franchise, where they kind of dropped that trying to be like Call of Duty and Michael Bay movies stuff. That that got Resident Evil 6 dragged by reviewers. So there's there's been a lot of a lot of stuff in in the last few years uh, a lot of evidence that Japanese publishers are seeing Japanese developed content can appeal in the west just fine. Uh, Sega's Atlas and the Persona Shin Megami Tensei series, the Yakuza franchise, uh, they they've they've all been doing well for Sega recently. And it's just, I don't get the sense from Japanese publishers anymore that they're all that worried about, you know, their ability to appeal to Western audiences with the games that they make. Uh, it, it seems like they, they've kind of adapted and accepted that they're, they're now in a, a market where you can have huge hits from, from the West, from Japan, from Europe, from anywhere. And and it's just you can't expect to have all of them coming from any one region. And and I th- I think they're they're doing a lot better also with the way that they incorporate Western influence. Um, you look at something like Elden Ring and uh, it's an open world, you know, and and it, it owes a debt of inspiration to Zelda Breath of the Wild, uh, but also to everything that. Zelda Breath of the Wild took inspiration from. And and those things owe a debt of inspiration to the original Zelda. Uh, so it, it, it's all kind of... I think, I think it's much healthier for the industry when, when creators are able to look across at the output of everyone and pick and choose the things that they find interesting and then, you know, put their own spin on them. Um whether it's informed by, you know, other games or, or just the tastes of their own market or, or developers in their own region. Um, but I, I, I think it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a better approach than what Japanese publishers were taking 10, 15 years ago in just intentionally kind of subordinating what, what they were good at and what they could do in order to mimic what was already working for other developers. It's worth emphasizing as well that this is not going to hurt Square Enix. Like uh, Tomb Raider, mm. etc., are really big. I... Mm. I... 
okay. 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 I think. Let me. Okay. Say. Say your. Say your piece. Let me put like. Let me put that in context. Let me put that in context. What I mean is, Square Enix has more than enough that is doing well without its Western studios. Like because and and just it's it's HD games which is how it classifies like PC and console titles like that is all that has for years been a very small part of its business so like looking at its last um, latest financial results alone so for the nine months ended December thirty first twenty twenty one so you know, the first three quarters of its um, financial year uh, digital entertainment which is all its games operations made one point eight billion dollars in net sales. 852 million of that was smartphone games, so that's almost half the that is mobile alone. Um, MMOs do really well for it. Final Fantasy um, 14 is particularly doing really well for it, and HD games like generally aren't the biggest sales driver for them anymore. Like they are, they for, they perform really well in the mobile and MMO space. They don't always perform brilliantly in the traditional PC and console space. I've seen a lot of kind of very cynical takes of like, oh, they've. They've sold off uh, the Western operations so they can focus on blockchain because we know that they're trying to go into the M- NFT and token economy games. But um, yeah, like I, it's not that there's, they're not going to feel any effects from this, but like this is not giving away like their biggest in terms of their, their global operations in terms of what they generate money from every year. This is not the biggest part of their business. No, but if you if you think about like the growth potential. Like I, I think this this group of IP that it's giving away uh, or s- mm. selling for too little money, I, I think there's tremendous potential in um, Deus Ex and in Tomb Raider in Legacy of Cain. Uh, that's in there too. I, I, I think that these these franchises are known. They have value to a lot of people. They have, you know potential for movies obviously in tomb raider's case and i yeah. i feel like square enix has uh not not optimized that, that value in in the last however many years and and maybe if square enix continue to hold on to them they just were never going to realize that potential but uh, i i think I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in embracer group to do this either but if if these companies now are sort of left to their own devices they if they are able to to make their own calls on this much like io interactive has been making its own calls on hitman uh i i think that there's significant potential that they're going to wind up coming out of this with you know much stronger franchises and and some some breakthrough hits that square annex could look at down the line and say ah that should have been us I can't believe that we that we let this go for so little money because it's it's just sort of like a a mismanagement of assets. That's that's the hope, isn't it? And again, like IO Interactive, as you say, is like is the big example here. You you look at them and what they've done with Hitman since, and like the fact that they've they've they've, man, they've not only managed to like boost Hitman more than they did under Square Enix. Um, you know, like because Hitman's Hitman Three was massive for them. They also they've secured the James Bond license. You know, that's how much they've grown since they left Square Enix. So the hope is that, yeah, maybe Crystal Dynamics can do that. Um, I mean, we know that Crystal Dynamics are working on a new Tomb Raider uh, powered by the new Unreal Engine. So, you know, Tomb Raider's due another kind of a moment in the sun, as it were. They're, they're helping out with Perfect Dark, and apparently that is still happening. So I imagine that that, that was going to be a while before. Th- that was the big red flag that Square Enix was not interested yeah. in them anymore. 
just when when you take your you know a premier AAA development studio like Crystal Dynamics, you're like, yeah, go ahead and work on someone else's stuff for a while. That's fine. Yeah, that's that's just to keep you busy while we look for a buyer. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mean, tree. We are obviously still. You know, as with all acquisition processes, we're obviously still finding out details. Like, I'm intrigued. I'm particularly intrigued to see what happens with the Marvel deal, because when Square Enix announced that, and I keep, I, I get the timeline mucked up. I swear they announced they had this deal in like kind of 2015, 16-ish before I joined GI. Um, but apparently, it was 2017 is when they announced they've got the Avengers game. But point is, they they signed a multi-year, multi-game deal um, with Marvel to produce multiple games and they have technically done that in the avengers and guardians of the galaxy are two games and that is multiple games but you would think that both square enix and marvel were hoping for more of an output from that sort of deal i don't know how long it is i don't know how long the deal was for but i'm intrigued to see like does that pass to embracer as part of you know handing over everything that crystal dynamics and Aldous module and everyone was working on or does Square retain that and has to find other studios or just gives up on the deal? I don't know. I'm going to go on another tangent as well. Like, so something you were saying about the um, your, your piece on the existential crisis, um, which is great editorial, and I'll, and I'll link to that obviously in the show notes as always. Um, news that happened this morning, this is a slight tangent, makes me wonder if the next existential crisis we're seeing or the next similar trend we're seeing is going to come from China. So NetEase has opened its first US studio today. Um, Jackalope Games, based in Austin, um, making like online games, online multiplayer games for PC and console, led by former Cryptic Studios Jack Emmert. Um, but then you've had like Tencent, which is NetEase's biggest rival, has uh, Team Kaiju. They bought Inflection from Improbable. They've got, I want to say Timmy. It's like T I M I. I can never, never remember if it's like Timmy, Timmy. Time I, I don't, no one knows how to pronounce it. When you do silly branding of a student, uh, studio name, no one knows how to pronounce it. Just a warning for games companies there. Um, but the point is, like, both NetEase and Tencent are now doing what Japan, Japanese publishers did all those years ago, which is like investing heavily in trying to get a foothold in the West, having Western developers, making games for Western um, audience, audiences. I mean, the fact that Tencent is taking its. Um, uh, it's it's flagship IP, Honor of Kings, and is making Honor of Kings World, much like we had Monster Hunter World. Like China clearly is the next next market to try this, to try and get into the West, get that talent, get that design ethos, and see if they can crack that audience. Like I, I'm intrigued to see if like if we see more more of this, and if it goes any better for the Chinese than it did for the Japanese. Well, I th- I think the inspirations behind it are probably a little different like i i think tencent and netties have seen uh the way the chinese government has cracked down on games in the last few years they're seeing a political climate where you know games are demonized to the point that kids are allowed what three hours uh one hour friday night one hour saturday night one hour sunday night uh, uh and that's all the games they get for for the week and they see how china could you know, crack down on things like uh, the availability of the international version of Steam and the accessibility of it in the country. And and uh, they probably recognize that, hey, maybe it's not a great idea to be entirely dependent on our 
ability to continue to make and sell the games that we want to make how we want to make and sell them in China. And so if you've got the money that Tencent and NetEase has, I think it only makes sense to try and diversify your your revenue streams a bit and and get hits in other parts of the world that you can live off of if the Chinese government decides to just, you know, turn off the tap on you. And and that's in in some ways that's, you know, part of uh it's 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 like a, a mirrored version of all the Western developers and all the Western publishers that were trying to establish games in in China, like NBA 2K Online or Call of Duty Online, uh, where where they just saw a massive untapped market and and figured like okay, well hey that's that's something that we can we can look to not only for growth, but to uh, just to help diversify our, our, our revenue and, and make us less dependent on one brand or one market elsewhere in, in our business. So I, I, I suspect that's a fair bit of what's going on um, with, with any kind of Chinese push for, for international uh, success now. It was probably going to happen yeah. anyways, but the the Chinese government putting the clamps on gaming in the last few years, uh, I think, had probably stepped up the sense of urgency around it. It's it's different circumstances, yeah. I'm just I'm intrigued to see what that group of studio produces eventually, and whether it whether you know in you know ten fifteen years time we see those studios starting to either close or be sold off because actually those publishers decide they're going to focus on their own market. I don't know. Yeah, the mobile market actually the the idea of trying to appeal to a different audience and different tastes with the mobile market is interesting to me because it's it's so analytics driven. I I, I wonder if the the barriers uh, aren't aren't there in in the same way that they they seem to be with uh, a lot of the you know console and pc space although the the differences between console and pc games and mobile games also seem to be uh getting slimmer um since you have things like fortnite and call of duty mobile and and genshin impact kind of uh mimicking their their console and pc counterparts to to such a, a close degree these days that is all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, you can find previous episodes of this podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. And as always, you can find more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz.